The Knowledgeable Provider Podcast is intended primarily to entertain, also to inform, but it is not a substitute for actual medical training and should not be used by anyone to diagnose or treat any medical condition in themselves or others. If you need medical advice, please make an appointment to see your own knowledgeable medical provider. The opinions expressed by me and anyone else who happens to appear on the podcast are solely those of the people expressing them and are not necessarily representative of any other entities. Other than the lunches at the office, I do not receive any sort of compensation from pharmaceutical or medical device companies, and I have no other relevant financial disclosures. Look, this is all for fun, okay? Don't sue me. All right, on with the show. Hello, welcome to Knowledgeable Provider. I'm your host, Jody Marks. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with my friend and mentor, April Clark, who's managed to have a very long career in a busy ER that tends to chew up nurses and spit them out. I know I could never work there for sure. So I want to know the secret. I wanted to talk to April about her longevity in the field. And of course, we end up talking about a bunch of other stuff as well. She's such an interesting person. Unfortunately, my computer just decided to pretty much fail right in the middle of this interview on toward the end of it. So of the three recordings that I usually have, only the backup Skype recording survived. And I'm thankful I didn't lose the conversation, but the audio quality is not exactly as good as I would prefer. So hopefully that's not too much of a distraction. So without further ado, April Clark, welcome to Knowledgeable Provider. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Well, I am a nurse practitioner currently working in emergency medicine, and I have been doing this for about, I guess, a little over 20 years now. I was formerly a flight nurse and flight medic, and I... I've always enjoyed emergency medicine and kind of everything that goes along with it. 20 years. That's amazing. Yeah. I kind of joke and tell people I was a child prodigy, so they don't really know how old I am, but I can't believe it's been 20 years either. Have you have you been in the same ER the whole time at Huntsville? So when I was a, we say baby nurse, they would not allow new grads in the emergency department. So I actually worked on a cardiology floor for a little while. And then I transitioned to a smaller ER and worked there for a few years and then transferred to the ER where I am now. Gotcha. Okay. How long did it take for you to make it to, uh, to Huntsville ER? Uh, about about three years. Okay. Gotcha. And uh, level one trauma center, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Big deal ER. Um, I guess that's one of the main things really I want to talk about is, is your longevity in that field. I don't know the statistics, but I get the feeling that there's probably a lot of turnover, probably not a lot of people spending 17 years in the big, busy ER like that. Yeah, I'm probably somewhat of a unicorn. Um, there's there's a few of us that have been around that long, but not many. Tough place to work and burnout is very high. Sure. Yeah. What, what are the things that make it tough in your eyes? Well, you know, I've noticed a big change over the last probably 10 years or so the, the patient acuity has gotten a lot more intense. The The patients are sicker. You know, our population's living longer. So people have a lot more comorbidities. And the sheer volume that we have has made it, it's very challenging. Sure. Yeah. Has there been a big change since COVID or because of COVID that you picked up on? Oh, absolutely. With COVID, you know, there was a big shift. A lot of people, I think, were scared. Nurses were scared. They decided to leave the bedside, which has left us with a national nursing shortage, and we're definitely paying for it now. You know, the ER is short, the the inpatient floors are short, so we're we're boarding patients longer and longer in the ER, which is a dangerous situation. And for the first time in my career, we're having you know ambulance patients that come in with nowhere to go, and they're we call it sitting on the wall, but they. They sit on an amulet stretcher for an hour or two until we have a place to put them. Sure. Yeah. And I know Hemsey's kind of adjusted their procedures so that they can have somebody sitting there watching their their patients before they're turned over to the ER so they can get the trucks back out in the field. Yeah. They're generally leaving a, a supervisor to watch over the patients until we can do a 
a formal handoff. Sure. Yeah, that is that is way different from when I was involved in all that. You know, it was like kind of unusual if you waited more than 10, 15 minutes to get a bed. And and you were pissed off at that point, if you know, if it hadn't happened by then. <laughs> sure, yeah. We used to never keep our, our EMS waiting. And it, you know, used to be people would abuse the system and they'd say, oh, well, I'll get back faster if I get in on ambulance. And that's just not the case anymore. It's a very different world. Yeah, I imagine so. Uh, what what kind of hold times are you seeing in the ER? How how long are you having patients wait? I mean, waiting to be admitted or transferred or whatever. For certain populations, sometimes it can be days. You know, I've seen 48 to 72 hours for some patients. The average patient can be anywhere from 12 to 24 hours to to be in the ER before they get an inpatient bed. Wow, it's unbelievable. And people stacked up in the waiting room, I suppose, waiting on beds from out there also. Definitely. And, uh, you know, it's kind of hard because, you know, we as healthcare providers, we genuinely want to help and we want to take care of these people that we know are sick. It's kind of difficult to do when we have nowhere to place them. You know, we're kind of limited on our resources with staffing and, you know, they get frustrated. So in turn, it makes our job harder. Sure. Right. Are they doing any kind of a fast track process where the nurse practitioner or the PA or whatever can see the patients and get them out or not so much? We do have a kind of a fast track area. I I can't remember off the top of my head exactly how many beds is in there, but I think it's like six or seven. So we try to put the lower acuity things through there. Um, Sometimes we end up bogging it down with sicker patients simply because we need to put them somewhere. Um, And then we also have... PIT, so physician and triage. So we have a, some days we have a physician out in triage that'll see the easy stuff, you know, ankle sprain or a simple laceration. Yeah, that sounds ideal. Is the setup still that the physician has to see the patient even if, even if you've already seen them? Yes. So, you know, for our hospital, that's the way they have it set up in the emergency department, which I think hampers our, our throughput and patient flow. Because, you know, there's a lot of patients that a NP or a PA could easily see in disposition without a physician involvement. Sure. Do you, do you know what's behind that for them? Is it, a, is it a liability thing or a reimbursement thing? I think it's probably a little bit of both. Also, you know, some of the upper medical staff and management just haven't gotten on board with mid-level and advanced practice providers to, to fully know, I think, the scope of what we are actually capable of and what we're trained and educated to do. So hopefully, you know, we're, we're working on it. We're trying to get them on board. And I think if we can kind of prove we can be productive and actually help with patient throughput, that would be very helpful. Right. Yeah. I would think just from a reimbursement point of view, even if, even if they're being reimbursed less per patient, if they could get more patients in and out, it seems like things would level out, you know? Yeah, exactly. It, even if a, a nurse practitioner or a PA sees the patient and discharges and that keeps them from eloping, the hospital wouldn't get paid at all because the patient would end up leaving, you know, due to the extended wait time. So I think it would be very helpful. How often are patients leaving without ever being seen? The system we have right now, we have we have nurse practitioners and PAs in triage. So from the moment the patient hits the door, they're triaged by a nurse And typically a a nurse practitioner, we only have, I think, one or two PAs right now. But we do a medical screening exam. So once we see the patient and we get things started, you know, we get started with labs and diagnostics. Technically, they aren't leaving without being seen. So they have been seen by a provider. Um, So the numbers may be a little bit skewed there. But as far as actually getting a thorough exam and completing their treatment and completing their evaluation. Yeah, I don't know those numbers. We we call those elopements, you know, because they've technically been seen by a provider. Going back to your own your own career path, what what was it that attracted you to emergency medicine in the first place? I started off my career as a physical therapy assistant. And you know, my view of nursing at that time was a little different. And I remember saying the words, you know, I don't ever want to be a nurse (laughs) because, (laughs) you know, obviously I ate those words, but I was seeing the floor nurses and it just, it wasn't appealing to me, but I had a hard time getting a full-time job as a physical therapy assistant. So I ended up getting a job in a doctor's office and 
the physician that I worked for, he really wanted me to do kind of everything in the office. So I learned everything from procedures, drawing blood, giving medications. You know, I kind of did it all. And at that point, I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I might as well go back to school. So in order to do that, I went to work at an urgent care so I could work weekends while I was going through the school. And I kind of got bit by the emergency medicine bug, you know, that kind of more fast paced excitement, you know, a little bit of adrenaline when you have a patient that comes in sick and you had to call the ambulance. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Looking back now, how do you feel? Uh, what keeps you around, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah. So like the other day I had a really great shift. I had, you know, the people that I work with, I think are probably one of the biggest things. I enjoy working with a lot of the doctors and nurses that I work with, you know, the techs. We have a great group. So I had a really good shift the other day and we were really busy, but I actually felt, you know, that I was helping and what I was doing was useful. You know, I think that feeling keeps me going. You know, obviously there's some days that are better than others, but you, know, you kind of get that satisfaction from feeling like you really helped someone. And I I think I still like the the adrenaline also. You know, it's still exciting because I learn something new every single day. That's amazing. I'm so glad to hear that you still that there's still some enjoyment and excitement and uh I love hearing that. You know, it's been tough in the last several years, you know, COVID COVID I think really hurt a lot of healthcare workers. Um, there were points when I was just ready to leave medicine altogether. And I think you and I had talked about that personally before because it was so difficult, the uncertainty and the unknown. You didn't know what you were dealing with. Um, yeah, there were times when I just wanted to take off and open a bar in Costa Rica and be done with medicine altogether. Sure. What what kept you from doing that? I mean, realistically, you could do that. Yeah, I could. Um, but there is you know, financial stability in medicine. I, I know I will always have a job. There will always be work. And for me to go off and find another career to, I guess, pay me the same kind of level that I'm at now, I would have to go back to school or, you know, find a whole new career path, which is kind of daunting. Right. Yeah. Looking back now, you know, if you were talking to uh, little April, physical therapy assistant April, uh, <laughs> What what advice would you give yourself as far as how to keep showing up every day or about your career path or, or what would you do different? I mean, anything. I wish I would have known, I guess, 20 years ago, I probably would have gone to medical school. But also, I don't know, I've I've really enjoyed the path that I have, you know, doing the, the flight nursing and flight medicine was that's one of the best jobs I've ever had. And I wouldn't have gotten that opportunity had I been, you know, a physician. I guess I would tell little baby April, you know, to make sure that you have the proper balance with, you know, work-life balance, enjoy things outside of work because they will let you work and work and work and work yourself into the ground. But at the end of the day, you have to, to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and spending time with your family and friends, you know, outside of work. Yeah, I think that's huge. I wish you would go back and tell little Jody that too. I definitely fell into that trap with the ambulance service. You know, they like you said, there's always a shift available, and you can always go make more money, and they're never going to yeah. tell you no. Exactly, and they, especially in the beginning, I felt a sense of, oh, well, you know, I'm a trauma nurse. They really need me. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, there is always somebody who's going to be able to cover another nurse, another medic is always going to come along and they're going to fill your shoes. So sure. make sure that you're doing things that because you want to and not because you feel like you have to feel pressured to uh, fill in that spot because you know, your coworkers are short. I feel like I didn't really start developing as a person until I was in my, I don't know, late twenties because I just, all I did was go to school and go to work and you know, I was, my, I guess my whole identity was being a paramedic and the people I hung out with were paramedics and that's just kind of all there was. Yes, exactly. You know, it is. And especially in pre-hospital medicine, it's such a tight-knit community. All your friends are paramedics. All your friends are, you know, in the ER, in the nursing world, and you don't really know much outside of that. And it's easy to get caught up in that excitement and that 
pressure to always work and you know i can always pick up another shift we really need you we really need you yeah and i think i think it's fine when you're young but uh as you get older that's not to me it's not a sustainable way to live no absolutely and you know i still work a lot but now it is so i can pay for my my fun things outside of work yeah what are your fun things what do you like to do i like to travel quite a bit so i'm always planning and plotting for my next big trip. My next one coming up, I'm going to England, Scotland, and Wales. So I'm really excited about that. You've been to some very exotic destinations, right? You've been around the world. Yeah, I think the last I counted, I've been to maybe a little over 40 countries. Wow. You know, obviously, I would like to hit them all. I don't know that that will ever happen. <laughs> sure. In, any experience with uh, medical systems outside of the outside of the United States? Yeah, in the last uh, two years, I've gone with a group to Kenya in Africa, and we're doing medical mission trips. I'll go again in February, and that'll be my third year to go. And I have to say, it's probably one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done in my life to see these people who have nothing, but yet they're still happy and they're very content with their life. They're not chasing after the next big electronic or the next new something, but they're still very happy and they are very appreciative of your help. So it's nice to go down there and be able to see patients and, and help them because you know they have, they have no one else. That's amazing. What kind, of, uh, what kind of situations are you dealing with? What kind of patients are you seeing? The, um, the organization that, that I go with is called uh, Kenya Relief, and they're actually based out of Coleman, Alabama. They're a really great organization. They have a clinic down there, and they see patients, but our group is more emergency medicine focused. So we kind of go out into the different towns, and we'll set up a little clinic. We'll see anything from thyroid issues. Um, they have a lot of goiters. Because for whatever reason, the African government has banned iodine and salt. So really? Thyroid problems, yeah. So I tried to find some information about this just in the interest of fact-checking. And as far as I can tell, that's not true. It seems like there are legal minimums for the iodine content in salt in African countries. But it definitely seems like a lot of salt that is available in African countries doesn't actually have the minimum required value. So I'm not sure where that information came from. I'll put a link to an article about it in the show notes. I thought about just editing this part out, but if that is a misconception in the medical community, then maybe it's one that needs to be corrected. Okay, sorry for the interruption. Um, we see some more acute things. We see a lot of a lot of malaria, um, typhoid, some different tropical medicine diseases that we're not used to here, which is pretty cool. A lot of kiddos with just you know fever and different ailments a lot of allergies, that kind of thing. We have seen some more acute things as far as, you know, hypertension, diabetes, strokes, that kind of thing. I've always wondered what it would be like going and trying to diagnose and treat things that you've never seen before as far as different infectious diseases, especially, I guess. Can you, can you talk more about that? What kind of experience have you had with that? Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to try to convince you to go with us one year. So you'll actually <laughs> get to see it firsthand. <laughs> I'd be um, open to that. I'd be open to that. Yes, yes, It you might should. be more of a liability than an asset, but uh, no, I'm going to tag along. It's, it's challenging, you know, because prior to going down there, I had obviously never seen a patient with malaria. You know, you read about it and you read about the symptoms. And after you see five or six people in a row, you, you kind of get that clinical feeling. It's like, okay, well, you have fevers and myalgias and headaches and all these kind of things. And it's like, oh, well, you probably have malaria. So we do have the ability to do a rapid blood test. So I think it takes about 10 or 15 minutes. So we have a little lab set up and they go and they get tested. So that's kind of good. You can kind of confirm your diagnosis and say, okay, then yes, I was right. You have malaria. You kind of have to get a little bit of a clinical feeling, but also you do a lot of reading and a lot of studying about the diseases before you go. What's it like? Uh, what's it like working without CT scanners and uh, you know all the all the cool technology? Yeah, it's definitely you have to rely more on your clinical skills and 
your experience because you don't have all of the technology. You can't just say, oh, well, you know, you're having belly pain. You need to go get a CT scan, which you can write a re- referral or a prescription, um, which literally is just me writing on a notepad to get an x-ray and ultrasound. And there there are hospitals that they can go to. You know, obviously, it's they're limited by funds because you they have to pay. You know, if I order an ultrasound, they have to go to a hospital and they have to pay cash money to be able to get those tests. So, you know, if we can clinically diagnose them with something, then we do that. But there there were a few people that, um, you know, you send for some diagnostics. I had a lady that she had had an acute stroke some months prior and she was completely hemiplegic and not able to walk and her family was literally having to carry her everywhere. So that was really sad. Uh, not carry as in put in their station wagon and take her somewhere physically. No, like carrying physically. her. Yes. Yeah. Carrying her walking and, you know, sometimes they could get ride on a uh, ride on a motorcycle. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure those circumstances do make you more judicious about what tests you're going to order when you know those are the circumstances that people are dealing with. Yes, Absolutely. You know, we had the capabilities to do a couple of different labs. You know, we could check a, a basic hemoglobin and that kind of thing. But I had to to really convince a girl to go to the hospital because her hemoglobin was four or five, um, and she had malaria. She she didn't want to go to the hospital because it would cost money, and she couldn't afford it. So, you know, we kind of took up money from amongst our group to help her get to the hospital. Is there any is is there any sort of nationalized health system in Kenya, or is health insurance a thing, or is it just you're on your own? Pretty much on your own. In the you know, in some of the bigger cities, you know, like in Nairobi, I think some of some of the government workers may have some sort of health insurance, but kind of out in the regions where we are, it's not really a thing. Different hospitals are kind of known for different things, so. We kind of rely on the locals to say, hey, you need to go to this hospital if you have a broken arm or you go to this hospital to get an ultrasound. So I guess they kind of have their own little specialty. But to my knowledge, no national healthcare system and no, I guess, organized system. Have you found that you've learned things off on your mission trip that have helped you when you once you come back and work in your regular role? Somewhat. Um, for me. As you know, primary care is a little bit different from emergency medicine because I'm not typically managing people's blood pressure or diabetes from the emergency room. So I've had to study up and and read a little bit more about those things to work in Kenya. And then I think it helps me when I come home to kind of better understand the more long-term kind of care aspect. You had not seen any any malaria roll up in the ER in Huntsville and (laughs) immediately make the diagnosis? No, uh, I have had a couple people that have traveled, and I guess because of my knowledge of travel, I knew that they were in an area that was endemic for malaria, and you know, recommended we had to send them to an infectious disease doctor because they had traveled without vaccines to, um, I forget, it wasn't Kenya, but it was in Africa, and they were going to an area that was endemic to malaria, but they had chosen not to get vaccines and taken did not take any prophylactic medications for malaria so i just wrote somebody some prophylactic uh malaria medicine she was going off on a i can't remember what she was doing but uh i just had to do that for the first time recently you know it's one of those things where i don't i just had to look it up and learn about it on the fly i didn't know anything about it yeah cdc website's a good resource um and then at the end of the week you know we we work really hard and we see a lot of patients and then we get to go on a safari, which is just absolutely incredible. Getting to see lions and giraffes and elephants and, you know, they're in their natural habitat and you're getting very close to them. So it's very interesting. It's it's amazing. Is that what, like what I'm picturing from seeing it in the movies, like riding around in an open top land cruiser and just yes. seeing an- random animals <laughs> everywhere? Yes, that's exactly what it is. We got to experience... There was an elephant that had died of natural causes, but, you know, circle of life, there were a lot of animals feeding on the elephant carcass. So there were 
several lines that we got to stop and kind of watch. And then, you know, I kept hearing a strange noise and it was a very kind of high pitched noise. And I was like, well, that's not, that's not a lion. What is that? And it turns out that there was a hyena that had crawled inside the elephant carcass and was scared because the lions were getting closer. It's like we were watching uh, the Lion King in real life. It was it was pretty cool. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to bring the Lion King into this. I'm glad you said Right? That. I feel that way That's every great. time we go. It's like a turducken for the lion. <laughs> yes. Elephaina. Elephaina. That's a good one. You mentioned your, your experience on the helicopter a couple of times. Do you want to talk about that? That was probably hands down the best job I think I've ever had. It was obviously challenging, but we had such a great group, the medics and the pilots and other nurses that I worked with. You know, you just, I think especially pre-hospital, your family. You know, I'm spending 24 hours of time with these people. We eat together. You know, we are family. So Yeah. Yeah. I imagine so. I think it's just like with EMS, you know, you have your pretty much the same partner that you always work with and, you know, you get put in high stress situations together and it kind of bonds you and then obviously it's exciting it's fun you get to say you ride around in a helicopter which is just so cool it's the best feeling i'm sure it is amazingly cool i've always i was too fat to get on the helicopter (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that was tough you always had to to get weighed in and have weight restrictions so that was not fun but you know it's part (laughs) of it (laughs) was that your full-time thing I started off part-time and then took a full-time job, and that's actually why I got my my EMT license and then my paramedic license, so I could fill in in the paramedic slots when we had them openings. And then, you know, the company I worked for, I worked for Air Methods, I would, you know, do some kind of regional travel down to Florida and Georgia, had some great opportunities. Okay, very neat. Yeah, I didn't. I guess I didn't realize that a person could do both roles if you have both certifications or licenses. So if a, if another base, you know, because I got my Florida nursing license, I could go down there. But you know, if we were short, say paramedic got sick, and we didn't have another paramedic to fill in, I could fill in that day as a paramedic just to kind of meet that requirement for the state. You're a huge asset to them, then. I mean, I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> Did you stop doing that just when MedFlight shut down? Yeah. You know, reimbursement is not the greatest in the state of Alabama. So they shut down several bases, our base in Danville and then one in Birmingham and I think a couple others. And uh, that was that was really tough, you know, because they came in one day and they said, we're having a mandatory meeting tomorrow. And at that point, we all kind of knew, but they shut down the base immediately after that. So. I actually yeah. worked the last worked the last shift at MedFlight Two ever. Yeah, I remember. I have the impression that it was a very sudden thing. Like people, you know, were kind of left high and dry. Yeah, they offer you a spot with an open position in the company, but you know that would mean you're moving to Arizona or Idaho or wherever they may have an opening. So at that point, I was getting ready to graduate with my nurse practitioner degree, so I just chose to stay. Right. You ever think about going back and doing that anymore now? Oh, sure. I think about it uh, all the time. But as, you know, as I get older, you know, it's not an easy job, especially working 24-hour shifts. You get woken up at all hours of the night and you have to be ready at a moment's notice. And that can be tough on your body. You know, and as I get older, it's kind of nice to not have to do that. But I certainly think about it every now and then. Yeah, I have fantasies of going back to EMS every now and then, too. Well, wouldn't that be fun if we could we could both get like a part-time or PRN job and we could work a shift on the truck together? That would be fun. Uh, yeah. Okay, let's do that. Okay. <laughs> I think I have to – I let my license go, though. I think I have to – I don't know what you have to do to get it back. Oh, gosh. I don't know. Yeah. It, it'll take a while. All right. We'll work on that. <laughs> Although I heard that Hemsey might be part of Huntsville Hospital pretty soon. I also heard that rumor. I don't know how much truth there is to that. I guess probably wouldn't shock me, but I don't know. We'll see. 
Somebody sent me a link to a, a, like a news story the other day. So I guess it's public information. I guess we're revealing anything. No, I, I think I saw that on social media, WHNT or something. Somebody had a an article. Yeah. Did you ever work at Hamsey? No, I never worked at Hamsey. Um, I just did rotations with you and Jim Rashi when I was doing my uh, paramedic stuff. Oh, that's right. Can we work at cardiac arrest together? I'm pretty sure we did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I do remember that. It's been a long time ago. Yeah. How many of the folks that were around when you started working in the ER are still there? Oh, gosh. There's maybe a handful, maybe four or five. You know, some of the physicians have been there the whole time, but honestly, not many of them. Um, and a lot of the ones that I used to work with retired. But there's the Eddies who've been there for 40 years and, <laughs> you know, a couple of those kind of folks, but not a whole lot. Yeah. You, you mentioned that before they wouldn't hire new grads. Is that still the case or no? Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, you graduate from nursing school and Huntsville Hospital also has a program that they'll take some of the nursing students and they kind of bring them on in kind of a intern position and they will let them work. I guess it's kind of like they're precepting, but they're working and getting paid. So I'm not sure if they have to sign a contract or what, but we've had a few of those come through, you know, especially like our techs that work in the ER that are in nursing school. It's a perfect position for them if they want, you know, if they know they want to stay in the ER and that way they can get paid and learn the job while they're finishing school. They are recruiting like crazy. So if you are a new grad, we always have positions. How do you feel about that? I know more experienced people will, will say, like, it's it's so scary that, the, you know, there's nobody around that has a lot of experience. And I guess I have the impression that maybe the, the nursing care has sort of gone downhill just, just because there are so few experienced people around. I mean, has that been your experience or no? Yeah, I think we've definitely seen the potential for disaster. And some close calls where, you know, we have a nurse who's been a nurse a year who's training new grads. And... Yeah, the saying is, you don't know what you don't know. So these these people are training to the best of their ability, but also they can't train them and teach these new brand new grads what they don't know. So if you don't even know it exists, you can't you can't learn about it and teach other people. So there's definitely some deficits there, but for the most part, I think they're very willing to learn and they will ask questions, and they're not scared to ask for help. So I think that's key. Um, there's always going to be a few that are just cocky and they think they know everything and they're not going to ask for help. And those are the ones that are dangerous to me. Any specific examples that come to mind of, of near disasters or actual disasters? Well, yeah. You know, they will have a patient who's, you know, maybe hypotensive or hypoxic. And instead of saying something about it, they will just kind of let it ride because they don't realize the importance of it. Or so, for instance, we had a, a patient, this was, I think, a couple of years ago that was boarding in the ER and they were diagnosed with a non-STEMI and cardiology had seen them and ordered a heparin drip. Well, the, the nurse didn't think it was important to start that drip because they're like, oh, that's an inpatient thing. I don't need to start that. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the patient actually kind of worsened and their troponin doubled and they were having chest pain and the patient ended up having to go more emergently to the cath lab than, than we were expecting because the heparin didn't get started. So I think that's a, a knowledge deficit that they didn't realize how important the heparin was in that situation. How long did they go without the drip that they should have added? Oh, I'm pretty sure it was hours. Wow. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a thing that in their minds... That's an inpatient thing. They can start that when the patient gets upstairs. And, you know, for some things that's that's okay. But obviously in that situation, a, a patient with uh, a non-STEMI that was having occlusions needed that heparin. And, uh, you know, I think that delay definitely affected their care. Wow. Do you, do you know what the outcome was for the patient? I think they went to the cath lab and, and they got cast. I think they got a stent and, and they were fine. But... It was just the fact that, you know, instead of a scheduled procedure, you know, where you're in PO and you have all the all the preparation, it was a more emergent procedure. Yeah, that kind of thing is scary. I, I ran into that some when I worked in PACU. 
obviously not with with critical things like that we didn't you know they didn't let us take care of super sick patients a lot <laughs> but uh but you know there were times when the right thing to do is to switch over to you know inpatient mode because the patient like has a medicine due or you know there's not a bed upstairs and so now it's been 3 hours since their surgery and they're supposed to be getting this stuff and and there was still that mindset of like no we don't we don't do that they do that on the floor and and i notice a lot too that people will uh hide behind that you know they'll say oh no i i work in pacu i don't do that and it's like well yeah but we're all nurses i mean <laughs> at the end of the day we have to do the the nursing things for this patient and anybody can do that you know it doesn't matter what work what unit you work in exactly at the end of the day, we're all here to take care of the patient. It doesn't matter what your title is or where you work. I guess you transitioned from RN to nurse practitioner in the in the same unit that you worked in. Was it was it challenging for you to kind of get out of the RN role and into the NP role? It was because I think a lot of it was I felt a little strange. For instance, if I ordered an EKG as a nurse practitioner, I know how to do that. I'm fully capable of performing an EKG and doing it. So it felt strange for me to ask somebody who was my coworker as a nurse, like, hey, would you please do this when I know that I could just do it and get it done? So it was kind of that weird transition. But at the end of the day, I had to kind of realize, well, okay, I have other things that I need to be doing. I need to be seeing these other patients and doing other things. And a, a tech or a nurse could do that, but they can't do my job. So I kind of had, at the end of the day, make sure my job was being done before I would help others. And I still now, if an EKG needs to be done and there's nobody to do it, I'll I'll be happy to do it myself. Or if if I need to help clean up a patient, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to just let them lay there. But at the end of the day, you know, it's kind of hard to transition to ask people to do things that I know I'm fully capable of doing myself. And I remember a couple of times just when I was doing my training with you in the ER where there were times when you were like, I sure wish I could just open the Pixis and give this medicine and not have to wait on somebody else to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a weird, a weird transition there, but I think I got used to it by now. I'm sure it is weird. One day you come in, you're an RN, and the next day you're NP, and it's the same people, like, you know, the same dynamic. I can see where that would be challenging. Yeah, I think for me personally, because I had more experience than the majority of the, the nurses that I'd worked with, I think they had already kind of looked up to me as more of a mentor anyway, um, because I was doing relief charge and that kind of thing. But there were a couple you know, especially the ones that were older than me, as far as like experience wise, they had been in the department longer. You know, I got a little bit of pushback from a couple of them, you know, and we just kind of, kind of worked through it. You know, I think as long as you're, you're respectful towards other people, you know, I think that goes a long way, but there were a few that I think gave me a, a hard time just because they could, you know. Yeah. And I'm sure that, I'm sure that's weird for them too, if they're you know, super experienced person that was there when you, you know, on day one when you showed up and now you're the one writing the orders. I'm sure that I'm sure that's sure. a little hard to digest also. Yeah. You know, it is a transition because you look at that person and you're, I'm sure in their mind, they're like, well, I know more than that person. I've been here 10 years longer than them. So it can go both ways. I can see how it's difficult for both, both sides. Do you see that at all with new, you know, like new nurse practitioners that, or PAs or physicians for that matter that hire in from somewhere else that, that are not known? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think the, the personalities in the ER and EMS can be pretty strong because, you know, we kind of have to be a more assertive group. So you certainly will have people that come in, even new physicians, and, you know, the nurses will kind of be a little condescending because like, oh, well, why don't you know that? You should know that, you know, until they kind of get used to working together and, you know, I guess, unfortunately, you almost kind of have to prove yourself to prove that you are competent and that you know what you're doing. And then finally, you know, you'll kind of be accepted, but it can be a, a tough place to crack. I wish I could just take a, a GoPro or something into the ER, into that ER for anybody that's never been around an ER or been in there. It's just such a, it's such a different world in there. Oh, Yeah. I think that would be really interesting because, you know, the general public, they just don't get to see what we see. I had a patient's family member the other day that apparently was angry with me. So she told one of the other nurses that that I was a, 
I don't know if you curse, but a B word. Oh, totally. Yes, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> anyway, yeah, apparently this, this family member called me a bitch because she didn't like what I'd said. And I, you know, I was not ugly to the person at all, but I was just kind of straightforward. And I was like, you know, the general public, you could never walk into a grocery store. You can never walk into Walmart and just curse people out that work there just because you don't like what they said. It's kind of a jungle. So I wish people, the general public, understood a little bit more what we deal with. It is the jungle. And you are not a bitch. Unless... <laughs> <laughs> unless you unless your personality's totally changed in the whatever month and a half two months since I saw you last, uh, you are not a bitch. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> there are those in working around, I guess, every situation who would that would probably be a well earned. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm insult. Sure. But you're not. You're definitely not one of those people. And I'm sorry you had to. I'm sorry you had to endure that abuse. Yeah, I guess you just kind of have to let it roll. But at the end of the day, it's like you know, it kind of bothered me, but it kind of didn't. I guess in the fact that, you know, well, I, I hate that that was their opinion of me. And but also that the lady that said it, I didn't have any contact with her whatsoever. So I guess the patient had said something that made her think that I was being a bitch. So I'm not I'm not sure what happened. <laughs> but, I see. Miscommunication. Yeah, I'm sure that compounded with their probably eight hour wait in the emergency department did not help things. So. That's one thing that you couldn't get from from watching a video. I guess you know there's plenty of shows where they're they're in the ER and showing real things, but you don't feel the tension if you're just watching it on television. When you walk through there, you can feel the anger and the pain and the frustration. Just it's like dripping off the walls. It's amazing. Oh yeah, it's a very very tense environment. I used to hate walking out in the waiting room <laughs> when we have to drop patient. Man, you can. Oh. I, I don't know why there's not a cage out there for the staff to hide behind. Man, <laughs> those people are mad out there. Oh, yeah. I also still hate doing that because we've remodeled an area. And to get to that treatment area, you have to walk through the waiting room. Oh, you get some dirty looks. Oh, I'm sure. Of course, a lot of times they're altered or they're, you know, there's something wrong with them. Like they're not in their right mind and they're acting out. But a lot of times, but sometimes not so much. Sometimes they're just being assholes. Yeah. That is hard to take. Even in my even in my little bougie primary care situation, people act a fool sometimes. <laughs> and it's just like, what what are you thinking? I will never understand that, especially, you know, in a primary care situation like with you. I, I will never understand that because you are literally there just to help them. Right. And, and for the and for the most part, there's not even anything wrong with them. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. compared to compared to what you're seeing, you know, I don't know where people think it's OK. I will never understand that. I was just talking about this with one of the nursing instructors last night, how some of the students can just be so savage and rude and awful, you know, in school, like to the instructors I, or to each other. Oh, my gosh. That just absolutely blows my mind. Have you ever been in a situation in the ER where you really felt unsafe? Like oh, somebody was well, going to harm you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Years and years ago at the at the other hospital I worked at, we had a patient that was a regular and... He was, you know, coming in asking for narcotics all the time. And this one particular evening, the physician was like, no, we're not, we're not giving you any narcotics. You need to leave. And he says, fine, well, I'll just go out to my car and get my gun and I'll come back in here and kill every one of you. So we ended up calling the police and, you know, they came and talked to him and he had a shotgun in his trunk. Oh my. So it ended up going to court you know, so we had to go to court to testify, and essentially nothing came of it. They they told him he was trespassed, that he couldn't come to the ER unless it was an emergency, which he was there the next week. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I kind of felt that there literally was no protection for us. I've been bitten, kicked, spit on, punched, <laughs> you know, and it's... That's not outside of the norm. Probably anybody that works in the emergency room, you can ask them, and they've been in some sort of similar situation. Yeah, and that's so that's so sad that it just is so, like you laughed when I asked the question. It's just such a routine part of the job. It's awful. Yeah, and I understand it. Like you, you mentioned earlier, if you're, if you're altered or if it's a little old lady with dementia, then, then I'm not going to be so worried about it. You know, you just kind of take it as it is. You try to protect yourself, but... You know, we had a guy just the other day, which, of course, he was on drugs, but he was angry for whatever reason and kind of charged at me like he was going to hit me or get in my face. 
So I just had to put my arm out and kind of back up just call security. And uh, that's almost a daily occurrence. Yeah, it just makes me, I don't know what to say. It just makes me feel bad. It makes me feel bad that people have to endure that. Yeah, it is. It is sad, you know, with more mental health issues that we have in society and, and drug abuse. You know, it's just gotten worse and worse. Yeah, and it sucks that there are not more resources, but it, it also sucks that there's not more protection for you guys. I remember when they started going, hey, we should probably like check these people when they come in on the ambulance and, and wanting people and checking bags. And that's still a pretty new thing. Before that, it was just like, hey, come on in, you know, whatever. I think especially for for EMS and pre-hospital, you know, you're walking into situations that you have no idea what the situation is going to be like, how angry those people are going to be. and are they armed? Yeah, the pre-hospital folks are super vulnerable. I mean, you know, the, the plan is you don't go in. If there's any concern, the police go first and you don't go until they say it's safe. But, I mean, in practice, you know, who knows? Well, sure. I mean, but anytime you're walking into somebody's home and there's an emergency, so people are excited, there's adrenaline. And if they feel like you're not doing things quick enough or perfect enough, whatever, if they get angry and they're going to take it out on you, you just never know. And you're very vulnerable, you know, because you're you're in the mindset of you're there to help. But then the the other part of it, too, is you kind of get your guard up so much that I've overreacted a couple of times. One time we were in this lady's house and that some kind of domestic thing had occurred. And I was, I was squatted down in front of her just doing my thing. And she she was describing to me what happened to her. And like she drew back, like demonstrating what somebody was doing to her. But in the moment, I was like, this bitch is about to hit me, you know, <laughs> and I, I caught myself before I freaked out about it. But it did. You know, it just in that split second, it did freak me out. You also kind of get in that mindset where you're like constantly looking for somebody to surprise you or whatever. Yeah, you constantly have to be aware of, of your surroundings and what's going on because you just never know what these people might do. We got flagged down one time on the way. We had done a, I guess at the time it was called First Heart. We had done one of those transfers and we were taking the truck back to the station from the hospital to wash it. And somebody, we drove through downtown and somebody flagged us down at one of the bars And we stopped and this drunk lady was laid out on the sidewalk, you know. And so I'm squatted down to her next to her, talking to her. And I'm riding on the back of my glove. I'm not looking at her. And she she reached up and touched my face. And I didn't I didn't see it coming and I wasn't expecting it. And just reflexively, I just slapped her hand and it went bam and bounced off the concrete. (laughs) You know, it was embarrassing. But I mean, you're just on you're just more on alert, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you're just. It's your instinct to try to protect yourself, especially if somebody's coming at your face. And then I was like, don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do it's not same. a good PR. Uh, maybe that was before everybody had a camera in their pocket. That was hopefully. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> doing this, doing what you've done for so long, has it affected your, has it affected your personality? Oh, definitely. You know, when I first started and I worked in the doctor's office, however many years ago, you know, all these sweet little people would come into the office and they would bring you tomatoes from their garden and they would bring you Christmas presents. And, you know, they were so sweet. So in return, I was super sweet back. And then, you know, you get into the emergency medicine role and you get a little hardened. And, you know, I still try to be very kind and very empathetic to my patients. But also at the same time, I've learned to set boundaries, you know, when people start cursing at me, I like, I will tell them flat out, like, I have zero tolerance for that. I will help you all that I can, but I'm not going to put up with that. And you're not going to call me or anyone else names. Now, do you want to be treated? 15 years ago, I probably would have never done that. But, you know, you have to kind of learn to set boundaries and be a little more assertive and more aggressive, you know, in the emergency environment. Because if you don't, people will just, you know, they'll just abuse you. And, and I think people who are attracted to medicine are you, you want to care, you want to help, and you're you're not there to be confrontational or whatever. I I have a really hard time saying no to people. Yeah, exactly. You you're there because you you want to help and you want to do things, and sometimes it is hard to say no when they come in and ask you for something that you know is kind of a really ridiculous thing to ask for, but at the same time not totally unreasonable. Right. But, yeah, yeah. When it's a gray area. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Right. If it's totally if it's totally over the line, yeah, but most things are not. Most things are somewhere in the middle. Yeah. You know, during the whole COVID 
thing. I was, I'm very like, I was the first person in line for every vaccine. Like I'm super pro vaccine. You know, I was not on team ivermectin. I'm not, you know, I was like, we're only listening to the mainstream medical. Like that's just who I am. But uh, yeah. when they started forcing people, when the, when the company started saying, you know, we're going to fire you if you don't get a vaccine, I thought, I don't, I don't like that. Yeah. Like I, I want people to go get vaccinated, but I don't want anybody to be forced to do it. And so we would have these, we would have patients come in and say, Hey, can you, can you write me a letter, you know, for a medical exemption so I can try to get out of getting this vaccine. And my, my approach to that was to hope that they would lie to me and tell me that there was some real reason they didn't have to get a vaccine. (laughs) So I'd kind of do the, well, you know, if you, have you had any trouble with a vaccine before any flu shots or anything, you know, anything's ever bothered you about a vaccine and the, the smart ones that, smelled what I was stepping in. We're like, oh, yeah, they would kind of get it. And then I could go, okay, well, yeah, it's patient. Shouldn't get a vaccine. But some of them didn't. Some of them would be like, nope, never had any any problem at all. This one guy was like, I mean, I'm like almost literally comically like winking at this guy going, (laughs) are you sure? And he's like, nope, I was in the military. I've had every vaccine on the face of the earth. Never had a problem with it. I'm like, you're not helping me here. Like, I'm not going to, you have to lie. I'm not going to lie. But I'm not going to. I don't, I don't know. I don't even know where I was going with all that. <laughs> no, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Cause uh, yeah, that would be a, a perfectly gray area. Like you, you want to help them out, but at the same time you have to try not to bring your own personal beliefs into it. But also to me, COVID was just, I hate that it got so politicized and uh, oh, I know. <laughs> instead of leaving medicine up to medicine, it was political and it just went nuts. Real nuts. Yeah. That's one part of being going through a pandemic that I never would have anticipated was all the was that part of it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you read about it in textbooks or history books and stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, there was polio and then there was a vaccine and everybody took it. And now there's no polio. They kind of left out all the part about people not trusting and going off on their own crazy tangents. And yeah, <laughs> I, I would not have anticipated sure it happens, you know, back in. Gosh, when was polio around? I don't know. Remember when the vaccine was was invented? But I'm sure there were quack doctors who came up with their own special remedy to try to to sell it and make money. But you're right; it's not in the textbooks. And looking back at history, I just wonder how how it will be perceived in ten, fifteen, twenty years about the COVID pandemic. We should be alive long enough to see how they uh, write it up and see how it turns out. Yeah. That would be interesting. If I was any um, good at writing, I'd write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody who's who's new to emergency medicine or thinking about going into emergency medicine, can you talk about your process of just assessing a patient? Like, what's your approach? If it's uh, more a lower acuity issue, you tend to be a little more focused. You know, I think in nursing school, medic school, they teach you to do this broad, you know, head to toe exam. And that's just not feasible. So if a patient comes in, you know, say they're complaining of chest pain, I'm going to do more of a a cardiac-focused exam. But if someone comes in, say they're altered and I have no idea what's going on, you know, you may need to do a more complete total physical exam. Because if you, you know, if you're not, you're probably going to miss something. So I think when a patient comes in, you know, you start off immediately thinking, okay, well, what could this be? What am I going to order? What am I going to anticipate? You know, because right off the bat, I think, okay, well, this patient's going to have to be admitted or maybe they're going to be discharged. And then you just kind of start your assessment and thinking about diagnostics, what you're going to do, what you're going to order, and then kind of go from there. Any common mistakes that you see new nurses, uh, mid-levels, physicians making as far as things that, that are commonly overlooked or techniques that are useful that people don't know, anything, any little pearls like that, any tips? In the beginning, I always tell, you know, if I have a student, I'll tell them I would rather it be quality over quantity. So I'm, I'm not wanting you to go see 100 patients, but I want you to go see maybe a handful of patients, but I want you to really think about it. Because in the beginning, you don't even know, like I said, what you don't, you don't know what you don't know. So if you don't know that somebody comes in with chest pain, if you don't even think about it being a pulmonary embolus or, you know, a coronary dissection, because you don't even know those things exist, 
you know, I think you have to continually learn and read and you're always going to grow and get better. So, you know, I think it's hard as a, a brand new grad because if you don't have a good knowledge base and experience, you know, if you went to nursing school and you worked a year or two as a nurse and then you turn around and went to practitioner school, you know, I don't think that you have the knowledge base that you need to be an advanced practice provider. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's insane that they let people just go straight on through. You know, that's not what nurse practitioner school was set up to be. You know, the PA program is a little bit different. Um, but also I've seen, you know, we had a brand new PA a few years back that didn't know what a, a sliding scale insulin was just simply because he'd never worked. You know, that's more of a nursing thing. Sure. And, you know, and during his rotations, he had no idea what that was. So there's just a little bit of a, a learning curve there. But if you're not a, an experienced nurse, I, I don't think you should be going to NP school. Yeah. I, I don't understand why there's not a requirement that you like CRNA where you have to work for a certain period of time before you can even think about it. Yeah, I definitely think there should be. And then also, you know, you can't work as an RN in a outpatient clinic and urgent care and then think that you're going to go through an acute program and be able to function in an ICU or an ER setting. It's just completely different. Yeah, sure. I feel like at least there there's more of a trend toward you have to have a degree in whatever you're going to work in. Like you can't just get your family nurse practitioner and then go do something super acute and specialized. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, also people... You know, they can get into an acute care program, but then they want to work in family medicine. And I was like, you have zero experience in family medicine. It's totally different. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Probably needs to be a little more regulated and uh, a little more stringent, especially with some of these different schools, online schools and whatnot. Yeah, because they're, they're not doing the profession any favor by cranking out a bunch of NPs who don't know anything, you know. It gives us all a bad reputation, and maybe I'm an NP who doesn't know anything. But uh, no, <laughs> I'm not saying this, I'm not saying I'm holier than anyone else. But uh, it, no, it's not doing but, the profession any any favors for sure. Yeah, I think at least if you're experienced, you know where to go to find information. You know, I came into the NP role with I think 12 years of nursing experience, and I still I felt so dumb for at least a year and a half. You know, I just felt like I didn't know anything. It was a big learning curve. Yeah, I, I felt that way in family practice for a long time. I've been doing it for five years now, and I, I'm comfortable now. You know, yeah. Now, now, that, now that I've essentially done a residency, uh, you know, go figure. Uh, exactly. <laughs> pretty comfortable. And, and you know, I, I guess I had five years of RN experience and 15 years of EMS prior to that. And I, the idea of me coming out of school and practicing independently is insane. But I think the difference is you had that experience to know if a patient walked into your office and they were acutely ill, maybe say they were having chest pain, you could confidently, you know, say do an EKG in your office and say, okay, well, I think we can handle this on an outpatient basis or no, I think you need to go to the emergency room. And that I think comes with your background and your clinical expertise. Oh, heck yeah. I'm all over something like that. But like, Telling you what to do about your rash? I have no, I don't know. <laughs> Go to the dermatologist, I guess. I don't know. Half the time, they don't know either. They're going to be like, oh, well, we're going to biopsy it. So <laughs> I have, I have strategies for that now. But but yeah, at first, like I I was wishing, <laughs> I wish somebody would come into the office and code so I'd know what the hell to do, you know? Exactly. <laughs> be like, I don't know how to treat your rash, but if you die, I got you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, really. I wouldn't have done family medicine if not for Dr. James kind of recruiting me. But, you know, having him there right across the hall was essential. I couldn't have, you know, I had to learn a lot before I was comfortable doing that. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's a good thing. And also, I feel like you are the type of person that's not going to go rogue and be like, oh, yeah, I totally know how to take care of this. You're going to be like, no, I don't. I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to ask for help. So, yeah, I hope so. I hope I'm that kind of person. Yeah, I think so. If you could speak to all the primary care providers out there as someone who works in the ER, what, what would you like us all to know about seeing sicker patients and deciding when to send people to the ER? What are some common things that you see there that people screw up? 
I have zero trouble with somebody sending somebody to the ER if, if they're sick and they need further care than what can be provided in the office. Where I get frustrated is they're not clear about what's going to happen. We have so many patients that will show up in the ER and they're like, well, my primary care doctor sent me. So they expect that they're just going to get moved to the front of the line and they're just going to go, you know, go straight to a bed. Or, or they say, well, my doctor wanted this or X, Y, and Z. Well, my doctor told me I needed an MRI. Well, maybe you do, but maybe it's not acutely needed today. Maybe it's something that can be done down the line. And they don't understand that because they're like, well, that's why my doctor sent me. So I wish they would be more clear cut about the expectations that they're going to have when they show up to the ER. And also write a note, write or send a note saying, this is what I suspect. This is why I'm sending the patient. Even if you just handwrite a note saying the patient has a sodium level of 125 and they, they need to be admitted. Because a lot of times people will show up and they're like, oh, well, I had some abnormal labs. Okay, well, what were they? Well, I don't know. You know, that just causes us to have to spend 30 minutes trying to get on the phone and try to call an office and try to get a hold of somebody who can tell us what's going on. And then, you know, it just delays care and then ties up, ties us up for a, for a long time for, for something that could have been simple. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great tips. Are there still, are there still doctors that come admit their own patients to the hospital? There may be maybe one, I think at this point mm-hmm. and uh, bless his heart. If he's not retiring in the next year or two, I'll be surprised. He's very old school, and uh, but pretty much I think everybody just sends their patients to the hospital to be admitted by the hospitalist. When I did some a rotation with Doctor, she was still, you know, her patients would call, tell her something was wrong, and she would she would admit them to the hospital like they didn't have to go through the ER. You know, she would call and get them a bed and admit them and whatever, and then go see them later that night. And it was neat for me to get to see that because I feel like not I feel like that's not what most people do anymore. It's great when they do that because. I think she still does because she knows her patients, you know, half the time she's been treating them for 20 years or more and she knows exactly what's going on with them, what their background is. And, you know, it's simple for her to do that. And I would say, too, that I don't seeing it from that side. Uh, it's maybe not as great because she's seeing patients in the office, you know, and so somebody calls in and she thinks they have a PE and so she calls and gets them a bed and whatever. Well, then she's you know, we're busy doing whatever we're doing in the office. And so two hours go by and the nurses are calling going, hey, we need orders on this patient. What do you want? You know, like they're in the hospital, but she's not paying attention to them. And then two, you know, she finishes in clinic, goes and eats dinner. And then she's she's up there at 11 o'clock grounding. And that's no, you know, that's no way to live. <laughs> yeah. that, And I think that's probably why the big movement away from primary care doctors admitting to the hospital, because you have to learn a whole completely different computer system and now it's complex and you have to know all the rules. You have to know which orders you have to put in in order to even get the patient admitted. So I can see as a primary doctor not offering that service because it's so complex nowadays. And if you admit to, you know, say Huntsville Hospital and Crestwood, you have to learn both systems and and like you said, you're you're going to be at the hospital at 11 o'clock at night and then have to turn around and be in clinic at 8 o'clock the next morning. It's just not feasible. Right. It's crazy. Yeah, Dr. Dr. James took over the practice of an established doctor, and he actually did that for a while. He would, you know, take care of his own patients in the hospital, but uh, it, it was a work-life balance for him. You know, he has, he has young kids. He didn't want to be up there messing around at the hospital all night, you know. And the interesting thing about it from from our side of it now, from primary care now, is that a lot of patients still think that's how it works. Like they still think that I'm supposed to show up up there and tell everybody what to do. And or people <laughs> will say, what What do you mean? What, what happens when I go in the hospital? What do you mean you don't take care of me in the hospital? And it's like, well, I mean, I want to go home first. And second, I don't <laughs> even know where the bathroom is in the hospital. Like I don't you don't want me taking care of you. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's Yeah. It's gotten so complex. I took over from a very old school physician, but she she didn't have admitting privileges at the hospital either. And some a lot of her patients still thought that she would be up there taking care of them, which she would go up there and like make a social call, you know, and yeah. act I guess act like she was doing something, but she was not actually their doctor in the hospital. <laughs> 
patients do kind of have that misunderstanding because, I mean, if you are a lay person and you don't know, you don't know how the hospital works now. And I guess back in the day, you expect that your physician would show up and that's just not the case anymore. And we still have so many people that do that and they'll they'll show up and be like, yeah, my doctor sent me. I'm like, okay, well, we're going to get started <laughs> on your workup. <laughs> yeah, like, gonna... Oh, my doctor sent me. I'm like, yes, I understand. <laughs> and I'm sorry sure. that you think they're going to show up, but they're not. They're like, oh, but they talked to so-and-so. So-and-so is going to, you know, <laughs> or they'll call a consultant. Well, they talked to, you know, the cardiologist and they're supposed to meet me here. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, this is <laughs> not how that works. First of all, I try not to ever send anybody to the hospital unless I really, really think they need to go. And then I try to tell them, like, you know, you're going to be there all night and this is what's going to happen. And, you know, I try not to create unrealistic expectations. And I do send notes and demographics and we call a report over to the hospital. Yeah. I'm trying I'm trying to be helpful, which, you know, my office is directly across the street from the emergency room. So I'm definitely not calling an ambulance if I can, you know, if I can get out of it. Uh, (laughs) I've, I've pushed them over there in wheelchairs. I've driven them over there in their own vehicles and driven them over there in my vehicle. Like I called an, I called an ambulance one time. It was for a, a guy who had had COVID right, right. You know, at the beginning of COVID and he had like zero platelets and he, and he was very old. And I was like, okay, you, you need to go to the hospital, like not indicator. And so I yeah. did call an ambulance to come get him and take him to Huntsville. And then he died. Um, so okay. I felt like that was justified. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I'm trying not to. Uh, I'm trying not to be the primary care person that uh, creates <laughs> creates more work for the <laughs> ER people. Well, I feel like this is probably a pretty good place to stop. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover? Anything else that came to mind? Anything else you want to say? No, I don't think so. I appreciate you asking me. That's I consider that a, a big honor coming from you wanting to to interview me because I've always thought so highly of you. That's so nice of you to say. Thank you. And it's an honor to me that you would give me so much time because you're you're one of my. Uh, one of my true mentors and uh, heroes and friends in medicine. So uh, it means a lot to me that you would come on also. Well, I hope, I hope a lot of people want to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do this again. I, I feel like we could keep talking for the rest of the night. Oh, yeah, easily. We'll just have to do dinner. That's definitely your compensation for doing this. So you let me know the time and place and we'll make it happen. <laughs> All right. Anytime. All right, April Clark, thank you so much. Good night. Good night. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Okay. The thing froze on my end, but I guess we're still still here. Okay. Oh, God. What's happening? Can you still hear me? Yeah. I can hear you, but you are frozen on my screen. Huh. Um, I don't... I'm not sure what's happening. Hello? Um, uh, oh, yeah, I don't... I don't know what's happening and I don't know what to do. My monitor just went black, but obviously things are still on because I can still hear you. You can still hear me. Yeah. Huh. Well, okay. Um, Okay. I'm going to say what I was about to say, uh, and then maybe we'll just go on and wrap it up in case none of this is being recorded anymore. Okay. All right, that does it for this episode of Knowledgeable Provider. I'm your host, Jody Marks. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like or subscribe or follow and leave a nice five-star review. And as always, stay safe, take care of yourself, and take care of your patients in that order.